Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. This week my guest is Keith Baker, creator of the Eberron setting for Dungeons and Dragons as well as the card game Gloom, amongst many other things, all of which you can find out more about at keith-baker.com. And you can follow what Keith's up to on G Plus and Twitter, where he goes by the name Hell Cal Keith. Keith, uh, we're especially lucky to have because he's flown all the way from Chicago to LA to appear via Skype this evening. So, hey, Keith, how's it going? It's going well. I'm catching up with the time zones and such. Glad yeah. I could make it. That, that's always a challenge and a, and a top tip I picked up because I travel to New Zealand um, relatively frequently, I suppose, in, in the scheme of things, is apparently if you work out when the next meal you're going to eat um, is going to be and you go back 16 hours uh, without eating, then you eat that meal and then apparently you're all good in terms of uh, jet lag because apparently your body's food clock is more important than your body's time clock, so... So that makes go. a lot of sense. I'll try it next time. There's a Hazard Gaming top tip for you. Um, anyway, so let's uh, let's crack on um, so I can make the use of, uh, of Keith's final reserves of energies. How long have you been a role player? Uh, well, it's, it depends, of course, how you define role playing. You know, when I was in kindergarten, I uh, convinced all the other kids to, to play Greek gods versus Egyptian gods. Uh, but, you know, that's more in the general let's pretend phase of things. Sure. In terms of the modern role-playing game, uh, when I was nine, I got a copy of the Dungeons & Dragons white box right. and then also a copy of uh, the basic, you know, basic D&D. Right. Um, and then the advanced books. And I actually owned those for probably three years at least before I actually ever sort of tried to play with people. Right. I just loved, you know, the monster manual it was great. It's this huge mm. book full of all sorts of cool monsters with stats for them. Right. So I loved just reading the books. But right. I was probably around 11 or 12 when I first started uh, playing Dungeons Dragons. And, um, so, you know, about 30 years. And so who uh, purchased all of these books for you then? Uh, that would have been my mother, I would say. And she just sort of knew that it was hot right now and, and got them for you? or um... No, because at the time it wasn't even really that hot. I just loved reading and I loved things like Lord of the Rings, Narnia, Michael Moorcock, things like that. And it was a new fantasy thing. Right. And she always certainly supported my sort of creating stories right and hey this is something where you create stories yes so yeah i'm, I'm lucky in that, that my mother was uh was the one uh in my corner in terms of uh getting my Dungeons and dragons uh stuff together i wasn't quite as fortunate to have ready access to all of the books and things and at, at one point my uh she had to photocopy um a rule book for me uh, so she went to the, the school office and uh to ask the secretary to, to to photocopy it for her and uh the secretary said i'm having absolutely nothing to do with that evil game keep it away from me mm-hmm. um so so yeah so she but she persevered and i got a, a copy of the rule book but uh what who did you uh, play with first just uh you you gathered up some friends and said you know how, how about we uh give this a shot or yeah, that was basically it. Uh was just, you know, my, my local friends in school and just let's give it a try. I mean, again, as noted by the mythological cowboys and Indians uh, example, hmm. um, I was always 
happy to sort of make stories and mm. such. And so this was just okay. Well, let's let's try this. It's it gives us some structure. Mm. And did they uh, do people take to it um, reasonably quickly? Because I one of the things that um, I always find. Uh, interesting to talk to people about is, is when I see when they got got started is that oftentimes there's a there's a seed player somebody who sort of knows what's going on ahead of ahead of time and obviously far fewer people are you know the person who gets the book without ever having any experience uh, with it before and and you know it's kind of like putting tools in a room with monkeys and, and seeing exactly what they what they do with it and and between you picking up the books and reading them and playing it and then the first time you made contact with somebody else who had had played it how did your understanding of, of what it was all about, um, how, how was it the same, and, and how did it differ from the way that other people were doing it? I mean, I would certainly say that I was that seed player. You know, I was the person who sort of had read everything and was giving it a try. Now I think about it, I have a vague memory of when I was 9 or 10 uh, writing some homebrewed rules for a Star, uh, a Star Wars uh, role-playing game. Right. I don't think I ever ran or played, but I just was like, ooh, D&D is cool. I like Star Wars. What if you had a Star Wars D&D? Mm. That was before, you know, obviously they made uh, Star Wars role-playing. Yes. Uh, but back to the, the question, um, I would simply say that that people were intrigued because it was new. Mm-hmm. Um and there was certainly one or two people who started who would sort of play straight by an adventure, mm-hmm. you know, by the module and just run everything straight by the module. Whereas I was always, I liked buying uh, pre-written adventures just to read them and see sort of what people were doing. But I always liked to make up my own things. Right. And and definitely I sort of felt from an early age there that it was more important to make sure people were having fun with the story than to play sort of straight by the letter, uh, you know, of something someone else has written. Mm. Yeah, that's that sort of interesting divide, I suppose, that, that people form an opinion about fairly early on. They may change it later on, but but this idea that it's a, you know, dungeon master versus, versus the players, um, there are some rules to figure out what's going to happen versus, you know, the idea of you know we're actually telling a, a cool story here together and that's you know that it, sort of divide is it a competition or a collaboration mm. well, yes. that's much more succinct than uh, than i've ever been about that but yes absolutely collaboration or competition as you say and do you notice or have you noticed or in retrospect any connections between things that you did very early on and the setting of Eberron? i not so much um you know, I mean, one of the things about Eberron is that I did come up with it for the fantasy setting search. You know, it wasn't like Ed Greenwood where I've been working on it for, you know, a decade beforehand. Right. There are specific elements of it that I can point to and say, oh, the gnomes are, you know, very close to what I did with gnomes in my college game right. or the general idea. I would say that I always have had a thing where I've wanted magic to make sense. Right. And by that I mean saying if a particular spell exists and is reliable, what impact would that have on the wider world? Right. You know, um, and one of the ones I have to say is, is a good example of this, but Eberron doesn't, in my mind, 
do very well on it is Raise Dead. Right. You know, the idea of if Raise Dead was a reliable commercial commodity, mm-hmm. what kind of impact would that have on civilization as we know it? Right. Uh, and I w- will say that in general, that was certainly a concept uh, of just looking at things that are in the rules or as part of the world and saying, but wait a second, if people can do this, then you would expect that this would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also say that one of the things about Ebron generally is having a very sort of shades of gray approach to things as opposed to being very black and white mm-hmm. uh, in terms of morality and you know downplaying the role of alignment. Yes. And that's sort of in all the systems I play, I really prefer, you know, having things feel to me a little more real. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas sometimes when the world is very strictly defined into good and evil, uh, you know, it feels less realistic to me. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a complicated idea though, to try to convey, isn't it? Because that the whole notion of accepting that there are these infinite number of shades of gray between the black and the white, comes from your own experiences and then trying to sort of convey um, to convey that to the to the readers must have been a real challenge. Well, one of the things I will say about Eberron is it's often referred to as a pulp noir setting. Right. A lot of people hear that as a single a single tone, whereas mm. what it's describing is a spectrum. It is it can be pulp, it can be noir. Mm. And and the point of that is that on the pulp side of things, pulp quite often is more black and white. You know, Indiana Jones is fighting the Nazis. You never stop to say, oh, wait, is he doing the right thing? Do these guys have a, have a good reason for what they're doing? Right. So Eberron does have a few forces in the world like that. You know, the Order of the Emerald Claw essentially exists as a force that the players can always feel when we run into the Emerald Claw, they're up to no good. Right. Um, whereas to me, noir implies a greater, you know, a much grayer morality uh, situations that the, the right answer isn't so clear. Right. And so thus you have a lot of forces in Eberron that, you know, fall more into that camp. Um, and that's the role I personally prefer. Yes. As part of creating a whole setting, part of the thing is saying, okay, but what about the players who don't like the sort of things I like? I mean, I will certainly say that one of my general rules for game designers uh, is the mark of a really good professional game designer is the ability to make a good game that you yourself would not enjoy playing. Right. The ability to say, what is my audience? You know, who am I writing this game for and what did they enjoy? Mm. And, you know, understand that and make something that they do enjoy, even though it's not your thing. Right. You know, step just being, oh, I have an idea I like and I can make that thing happen. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that would be a challenge because with, with such an undertaking and such a, a wide scope to be able to say, you know, this is the the setting that I would like, and now I have to take that and make it more accessible and more, you know, interesting to the to the wider public. Um, did that sort of require two 
sort of writes like write it the way that I would like it and then try and put on a completely different hat for for a rewrite or on some levels it did and on other levels there's a matter of um leaving room for people you know sort of spaces where it's easy for people to drop in the things that they like right. um so I will go ahead and say I'm a person who sort of feels Dungeons and Dragons is a little too much of the Moss Eisley Cantina. Uh, there's too many sentient races. Right. Sort of is overwhelming to me when you have, you know, not only the standard uh, player races, which of course, you know, increase by four or five every time a new book comes out, mm. but then all the various different sorts of, uh, you know, enemy humanoids and things like that. Um, and not even getting into, and there's 30 different flavors of elf out. Mm. To me, that makes the world feel less real. And so I prefer to have fewer intelligent races, but more depth to them. Mm-hmm. So look to Eberron, you know, the goblins, for example, have a deeper role in history than they do in many other settings. Uh, but you know, you could say, what about Darrow? What about Durgar? You know, what about all these other things? And I basically, you know, downplay them. Mm-hmm. I want to address them. Um, but there's lots and lots of places in the world where if you're the hugest Darrow fan, I could tell you in a moment three different sort of solid places where you could introduce the Darrow into the world, even right. though I haven't. Mm-hmm. And... Um, a lot of people have this concept that Eberron is this kitchen sink where everything is thrown in. Uh, one of the 10 things we always say about it is uh, if it's in D&D, there's a place for it in Eberron. Hmm. People often take that to mean, oh, well, you've just forced everything in. And the key word there is there's a place for it. It's not in by default, but if you want it in, it's pretty easy to find a place where, you know, any given monster, any given race, any given thing can fit into the world. Right. So like I said, that was just part of the design was sort of thinking where are we sort of leaving the spaces that players can, you know, that DMs can fill in with the things that they like. And certainly with the world I'm developing now, because I'm working on a new setting at the moment. Right sort of you know those are the big sort of things to me because going all the way back to our earliest uh questions the thing to me is that i always want to make sure that a setting provides inspiration as opposed to limiting the game master i never want to have that situation where the the game master can't tell the story they want or that a player says oh you can't do that because in book whatever it says that doesn't work right i want the setting to be a foundation but if you don't like something i've done change it if you like a thing that i haven't put in hopefully there's enough sort of wiggle room in the design that it's easy for you to sort of fit that thing in right and you mentioned uh, the new setting that you're, you're working on. Uh, is there much that you can tell us about that at this stage? Uh, I don't want to talk about it too much at this stage because it's still in such an early stage of development that a lot of things may change. Right. Uh, 
will say is it's a fantasy setting, and it is something that I believe will appeal to people who are fans of Eberron, uh, but it's not simply, you know, Eberron with the names changed because, you know, that's uh, unfair for any number of reasons. But there are certain themes that are things that are very important to me. You know, the impact of magic on civilization Mm -hmm. uh, and room for moral complexity. Uh, I will say that when it comes to religion, you know, I really like to think about the role of faith and such uh, in a fantasy world, Uh, you know, which is something when you take the sort of interventionist gods of forgotten realms, um, you don't, faith isn't really a question if there is no, no doubt at all that the gods exist. If you see what I'm saying, that makes it a very, very different thing from our experience in the world. Um, And it's not a bad thing. There's lots of stories that you can only tell. Like, you know, you want the Trojan War, you kind of need the gods stomping around messing with people. Mm. I really prefer to have uh, religion sort of have the sort of more nuanced uh, role in the world. So, you know, that's just another um, piece of things. Right. And things like the impact of war, uh, you know, I'll go ahead and say again, in Eberron, we have the last war and, you know, it's this big civil war that we've just come out of. Mm. And I really like being able to say, well, what did you do during the war? How did this affect your character? How is it affecting the world, you know, in the aftermath? And so the point is that is, again, something you will see in Codex, which is the working title. It is not in any way the final title, but it's the working title of the world I'm working on, uh, you're not going to see the last war, but you are going to see war playing a role in both history and on modern nations. You know, what is the impact it's had? Um, I will go ahead and say that one of the things I'm doing in the design is thinking about the arc of history. Right. Uh, where have things come from? Where are they going? And in the long term, I've already sort of defined three eras that I would be interested in exploring. Um, you know, one of which I am focusing on right now. And I will thus say, in comparison to Eberron, um, Codex is at an earlier stage of development. Right. That uh, as I said, I really like thinking about the, the role magic plays in shaping civilizations. And essentially in Eberron, magic's been around for a while. And in Codex, it's more of a time of exploration and innovation uh, right. in the default setting. You know, it's more like if... Um, Eberron is sort of late 19th century. Um, Codex is more in the 17th century. More time when there are things to be discovered, when, you know, basically we're just starting to harness a lot of different forms of magic that we can think about, well, 300 years from now, this will be a very ingrained part of the world. At the moment, it's still a very dynamic force that is changing things as we get a better understanding of it. Right. Um, I will also just throw out one more thing that is something 
you tend to see in games that I work on and you will see here is, again, also exploring the role of dreams. Um, and, you know, again, it's going to be a very different thing from what I did with them in Eberron. But, you know, it's a thing where there is a role for that. Right. So what sort of timeline do you have in mind for it? Are you, are you hoping to line it up with the next edition of uh, Dungeons & Dragons or is it to design for a different system altogether? Or is that... Is, is your setting, is your idea at least for this uh, setting that it can be used in any sort of fantasy milieu? Uh, it's not for D&D Next simply because they aren't at a point now where they're even talking about, um, you know, licensing. Right. Um, it's more what you were saying at, towards the end. You know, the thing is with Eberron, people play Eberron with a lot of different systems. And that's not something I can sort of officially support in any way because... It's Wizards of the Coast, right? A property, and certainly with Codex, I want it to be something where people sort of are encouraged to adapt it to the system they like. And uh, ideally, you know, if I haven't posted conversions for things, I would love it for people to do their own conversions and you know throw them up online. Right. I want it to be something where people feel. They can play this with the you know the system that works best for them. So you know my current plan is essentially to have a setting neutral source book that is just the the source book of the world, and then to um, support it for a number of different systems. And so I'll start off with just a few. You know I can say Pathfinder is a pretty strong candidate for mm-hmm. that. But I'd like to do at least two systems, possibly three, that you know I am sort of providing strong support for out of the gate. And like I said, I hope other people will will sort of pick up and do their own conversions for the systems they like best. If I haven't been able to cover them, right? And I wonder, with creating a sort of a world book um, for no particular system, do you find that more or uh, less difficult? than for a well-defined system because you were speaking about the consequences of of magic and how that would affect society but part of that thought process I'm, I'm imagining is not only how it would affect society what effect this is going to have on the rules and the use of them and how that's going to affect the relative power of the, of the players and the different types of characters they might want to play oh absolutely and, you know, one of the things I would say is something that makes it very different from Eberron is that Eberron was, from the start, designed to be a D&D world. It was founded on the principles of, all right, arcane magic works like this. We have these spells. We have these creatures that we know about, you know, uh, and that sort of affected everything. And so with Codex, where I am not starting and saying D&D's magic is the model for it. You know, I'm going the opposite way and saying I'm coming up with a magic system and when I convert it to Pathfinder, well, I may have to make up some new classes to uh, to make that work. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I am bearing in mind the systems that I have played and enjoy and things like that. So my point is while I am not locking it to Pathfinder, I am, as I am coming up with magic, thinking in my head, okay, and how would this work in Pathfinder? And how would this work in Warp? And so, you know, I'm sort of 
that's going through my mind as I'm coming up with things. If you right. see what I'm saying. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's hard to design in, in a vacuum and, and having a thought about how that's going to you know affect the world. The reality is that you know when the rubber hits the road, there are going to be dice you know flying around the place, and, and people are going to be you know trying to figure out a way to to not only make this make sense, but but also to get some traction in terms of the uh, the rules and how they're going to be used as it relates to the to the magic system. So yeah, I I think that um yeah, I can't imagine doing it without a system in mind and uh you know, I take my hat off to you for taking on uh, such a jo- such a job in the in the first place. So so you started with uh, Dungeons and Dragons and then you had a shot at, at putting together a homebrew sort of Star Wars uh type game and then what did you play after that? I basically played everything I could get my hands on. Uh so I mean I had just a huge shelf of things. So I had, you know, Gamma World, Call of Cthulhu, Stormbringer, um, you know, I'm trying to remember, was it Lords of Creation? You know, I mean, just sort of literally anything I could find, I'd, I'd pick it up and look at it. Right. I played one for a while called Element Masters, which I will be surprised if anyone listening has ever heard of. I certainly haven't, yeah. <laughs> that for quite a bit. It was something I picked up at a convention that, you know, some sort of garage company you know had thrown together and and i liked it It had a couple you know a lot of good things so i will say to me this is a a factor in what we were just talking about is same as i like reading adventures even if i'm never going to run them just to see what people are doing i like reading games even if i'm never going to run them just to again see what people are doing with systems i will say what i sort of settled on when I was younger, you know, as first role playing, um, hero system, uh, champions, and then fantasy hero uh, was what I sort of locked into and, and played sort of most of all back then. And later, uh, you know, in addition to Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Over the Edge by Atlas Games yes. was the one that I I did some writing for, obviously, but. Mm-hmm. So played a great deal of that, and I'll say that even with Eberron, I actually ran a lot of Eberron games uh, using over-the-edge rules. You know, the system they're calling Warp now. Mm. And did you get a chance to play over-the-edge um, before you ran it, so you got to make those discoveries, or did you did you run it first and then um, sort of have to just make those discoveries as a as a GM? Uh, when you say those discoveries, are you talking about the system or the setting? Uh, I'm talking about the the setting. You don't have to give any specifics away. There probably are some people still that, that haven't read it or haven't played it. But that was one of the things about um, about that setting that I find particularly compelling as a as a player. I liked not sort of knowing exactly what was uh, going on. What I would say there is so I to answer your question. No, I ran it before I played it, right. but will say is that a way in which over the edge inspired me and has certainly affected my my subsequent work including Eberron is what I liked about over the edge was the approach that it's it's a game filled with conspiracies and intrigue mm. but in a lot of cases with the major conspiracies they don't give you the answers instead right. give you possibilities mm. they say Here's four possible explanations of how the Throckmorton device is changing things. Here's three possible ideas for how the movers work. And you could go for one of those three, or you could just use this as inspiration for doing your own thing. Mm-hmm. 
So what I liked about it is when I played in a friend's over-the-edge game later, even I won it, I didn't know where he was going. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I knew the shape of the world better than a complete novice, but I still didn't know all the answers. And so this is where you get in Eberron a very good example of this is the fact that we're never going to tell you what caused the mourning. Mm. And the mourning is this huge cataclysm that sort of brought the war to an end and is essentially the thing that is stopping war from continuing. People are, you know, as long as it is hanging over and people don't know the answer to it, people are afraid to go back to war. Um, And a lot of people have asked me, well, you know, what's the real answer? And there is no real answer. You know, when I created it, I basically said, okay, well, here's six possible things. Any of these would make sense to me. I don't have one that I'm like, well, that's the real one. It was from the start. The point was any of these could be. You you should decide which one you like or make up your own. To me... As I said, it's about a setting providing inspiration rather than limitation. Um, You know, you may not have the time or desire to create a whole world from the ground up, but having certain points where it's very easy for you to say, ooh, but in my game, this is the answer to that. And it means, again, created Eberron. But I can play an Eberron campaign with friends, and I have, and I don't know what caused you know the morning in that campaign, right? Um, and I like that. Yeah, that's the sort of the the perfect middle ground, is it? Where you create a setting that's sufficiently uh, robust that people can, you know, create their own things, you know, without throwing everything off kilter, right? That uh, like like you were saying with with everyone, and also with with over the edge, you know, having these different possible outcomes any one of which um, is still going to fit within the context of the of the, the, the foundation that's been laid. You know, that's that's sort of the, well, as I say, you know, it's the holy grail of, of, of setting design, I suppose. So you've played um, many, many things um, by, the, by the sound of things. And, and going back to that, um, episode 16 with, uh, with Lenny Balsera, um, we were talking a little bit about there almost the, there are sort of two ways to approach role playing at least in terms of the the books and uh, what he was saying is that he just loves you know the books and loves the games in the same way that in the same way that you do and part of the hobby for him is reading reading all of the the role playing books even if he never actually gets a chance to uh, to play the game and I wonder if that's something that's common for for designers in in general. I I feel, you know, again, as a designer, the more approaches you've seen, you know, the the better your design will be. Um, Just like as a writer, I find it's it's really good to read good books, you know, that, you know, in many ways that improves my writing because I have in mind, wow, that's that's really good. You know, you don't want to just sound like that writer. But again, you know, reading different writers with different styles, you know, all of those are inspirations. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember when Magic the Gathering first came out, I was mm-hmm. enough to immediately think that moxes were cool and yes. traded 
with a lot of people who thought, well, this is just like a land. You know, what's exciting about this? Yes. Uh, when the world realized they were cool, I had, you know, this stack of like 30 moxes and three black lotuses and such. Um, and as new CCGs came out, I would basically, you know, contact Troll and Toad and say, well, so there's this Mythos game. What would you give me for a Mox Emerald? And they'd say, we'll give you a box of starters and two boxes of boosters. And I'd say, great. And, you know, so as opposed to just making, uh, selling them for money, I basically tried out all sorts of CCGs I might otherwise have not been able to afford by sort of exchanging my magic for them, as it were. Right. And a lot of those games aren't very good. But again, every new game you experience helps understand, uh, you know, what makes a good game. Yeah, and uh, that sort of segues nicely into uh, Gloom as as well. My last guest, Daniel Solis, um, has a foot in both camps as well. Um, and I wonder what parallels do you see between creating um, creating card games, um, having like because it's much more static, I suppose, having to anticipate all of the consequences intended or otherwise of any particular card. Um, and then how, as that relates to sort of like the domino effect of putting things in your settings. Well, I mean, I think it's definitely, you know, you said it yourself. When you're dealing, because, you know, I've also worked on computer games, both uh, MMORPGs and uh, sort of single-player games, um, and I've also done live role-playing games. They're all completely different, but they all have these aspects of, you have to understand the balance of each element, the broader impact of each element. You know, when you introduce this kind of spell or this kind of skill, you know, as you were just saying earlier, well, if we have this sort of magic in the game, how does that impact non-magic using classes? How do, you know, do we suddenly say, oh, well, by the time you're 10th level, you're wasting your time? Um and that principle sort of, as you say, applies to anything if you throw in this action. I will say that in Gloom, there are one or two cards that uh, if we do a second edition, I will certainly pull out because at the time I did it, I didn't realize, you know, Gloom was actually relatively early in my professional career. Uh, and there are one or two things, as I said, that I'm like, mm, Body Thief really has too much of an impact on the game. It's too powerful. Yeah. Mm. And Gloom is certainly a game where it is a beer and pretzel style game um, where what I always say is um, you can't in if you just, uh, you know, if you get all the wrong cards, but you can get all the right cards and still not win if you don't know what you're doing. Right. Uh, and so luck is is a factor. It is not a hard strategy game. Um, but there's still a lot of strategy to how you use what you get, you know, what luck gives you. And this is why I'd say Body Thief is a card where I just feel it just has too much of an impact. Um, you know, it's it's too much of a, the person who get that gets that, in, especially in a two- or three-player game, just has too great of an ability to shift uh, shift things. Right. So anybody that uh, has Gloom cards, um, 
try and get hold of some body thieves because they're going to be uh, disappearing fast. Oh, yes. <laughs> take take a take a leaf out of um, Keith's playbook there. Okay, so well, how were you situated in terms of games uh, when um, the sort of so-called um, uh, or self-titled, I should say, um, renaissance in games or renaissance um, of the White Wolf games uh, came along? So it was interesting, actually. I, I have to say, I was uh, in college when sort of you know vampire really was was getting big and um and what was interesting is my circle of friends essentially felt vampire was too cool it's sort of the way some people sneer at hipsters today that oh that's not you know those people aren't real role players they're just you know sort of doing it because it's popular Mm. as it and and it's something where I, I sort of definitely look back at it and say, oh, it's really too bad. We really didn't understand actually what it was about. Um, but it was funny because, like I say, looking back on it, there was very definitely this, you know, the sort of D and D crowd sort of being like, man, you know, vampires. Uh, so so yeah, that's where I was. Is is we were sort of. Uh, intentionally pushing that off and it was only i think after i left college that i actually started looking into it and um when i was in one of my early computer game jobs working on mmos i was actually a uh storyteller on a um world of darkness mud Mm. which was very interesting because it's one of those things where you get to sort of interact with hundreds of different players and of other storytellers as well. So rather than just that experience of I see the game through the six people who happen to be at my table is I get to see how dozens of different people play it. And people come to it for very different reasons. You know, a lot of people played the vampire games or, you know, World of Darkness in general sort of as if they were superhero games. I just want to have the coolest, toughest character. Mm. People come to it looking at the, you know, sort of philosophical, psychological elements and things like that. So as I said, it was very interesting to be able to to sort of see that all in one place. And the same thing really is true of something like Dungeons & Dragons. You know, as you were saying, it's the people who come to it as a war game. It's the people who come to it to tell stories. You know, all of these things are there in sort of almost any system. Right, for sure. So... Um, what are you playing now, and, and how are you situated with the, the quote-unquote uh, indie games? And so um, I've just moved recently back to Portland, uh, and before that I was in Austin, so I've been sort of moving around, uh, which, you know, it's always hard to build up uh, a regular group. So before I left for Austin, I was in a year-long Exalted campaign that I quite liked. Um I myself always continue to, you know, I love to run over the edge or use warp for other things. I'm working on a uh, warp adventure for Codex right now. Say I've been using uh, Fiasco as a bit of a world building tool. And when I say that, people say, Fiasco for world building? Why not something like, uh, you know, there's a microscope or something like that. But the point is not for world building, but rather for location building. To say, if you do a fiasco set in Casablanca, well, then someone comes up with the idea that we're going to be hanging out at this place. Let's call it the Blue Parrot. Hmm. So the 
point is for taking a city like Sharn in Eberron, where you want it to be a city that can have a hundred different stories, uh, taking you know this fiasco-like playset that I've made and playing that with twenty different people. You know, it's shorter than doing a whole campaign, and it encourages people to come up with locations and characters and things like that. That's been very useful to also also just to say, here is the idea for an exotic location. How do 20 different people interpret it? Is this an idea that people can pick up and run with, or do they just find it strange? Um, so as I said, I found Fiasco very good for that. I obviously was involved... Uh, slightly in the development of 13th age which you know we are always looking at as it's sort of a bridge between D&D and the more indie games Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, aside from that you know I just recently played uh, Always Never Now which is Will Highmarch's uh, Lady Blackbird cyberpunk game I really enjoyed that uh, that's definitely, you know, that was some of the most fun I've had, uh, you know, on the player side of things for a while. Uh, and, you know, I've certainly, I uh, was, when I was traveling around the world, um, I had a period where I was traveling around running uh, an Eberron adventure that I ran about 54 times, and that was mainly in uh, fourth edition. So, you know, I've certainly played a lot of fourth edition. Um, I've done some playing of D&D Next in some of the early stages of the playtesting. I haven't actually had a chance to playtest sort of things that have happened in the last six months. But, um, you know, I would certainly say, again, Over the Edge was, you know, sort of an early form of the indie movement. Yes. I always enjoyed that. So, you know, I, I was always sort of in a place where, again, there was a time where the two main things I played were D&D and Over the Edge. And so I always sort of had a foot in both camps, if you will. Yes, absolutely. Um, all right, so before we uh, crack on with the Inside the Role Player Studio type uh, questions, um, what can people look forward to in 2013 from you? So it's, uh, you know, I'm working on Codex if that comes out in 2013, it'll be late 2013. Uh, but I do hope I'm going to be starting to talk about it more frequently on my website over the next month. And I would hope that uh, probably in the next three to four months, we'll be putting up a Kickstarter that will help determine the scope of the initial launch. Uh, I don't want to do that until I really have concretely on my end, you know, a solid timeline, a feeling that we have, you know, enough material written to sort of really feel confident in setting a launch date. Um, But that'll be happening in the next couple of months, as I said. I'm continuing to work on card games. There will certainly be a new uh, Gloom-like game later in the year. Um... And part of the point of Codex is I make role-playing games, I make card and board games, and I write fiction. And 
I really want to be able to integrate all these things. You know, I've written novels for Eberron, but I can't write one now. You know, I can't just do it on my own. I can't make an Eberron-based card game. Uh, you know, even if I have an interesting idea for a fantasy card game, I can't do it there. Mm-hmm. And so part of why I'm doing Codex is so that I can say, okay, I'm going to make a card game that is actually a game people play in the world, and I'll be able to make that game. Right. So, again, Codex is a sort of long-term project in that, you know, I'm going for the initial sort of role-playing launch, but I am also working on fiction and games of other sorts tied to the world. Right, so it's sort of going to be a spawn point or or a nexus for a whole bunch of different things to come. And other than that, you know, just looking at things recently, I did a piece for uh, Robin Law's uh, Hill Folk that's coming out soon. Um, I also am going to be doing a level for the Emerald Spire, which is Paizo's uh, sort of Pathfinder super dungeon that'll be coming out later in the year. So, you know, doing a little bit of odds and ends. Right on. Okay, well, uh, the first question for you then is, how many role-playing books do you own? It is really hard for me to guess that off the top of my head. I will say that... um, I did I did this thing where I traveled around the world, uh, Have Dice Will Travel, and I certainly hope to do it again, where I basically just traveled around the world um, couch surfing in exchange for running, you know, running D&D adventures in exchange for a place to stay and sleep. And at that time, I had about a year where I literally had no fixed abode. Right. And... So when I was phasing into that, I divested myself of a lot of my uh, books and games that I just sort of felt, eh, you know, I've been carrying these things around for a long time. Um, let's lighten the load. So certainly a lot of the sort of more obscure systems that I knew I was never going to play, uh, I let go of at that point. Um I would still have to say we're talking in the hundreds of books, uh, but, you know, not in the thousands as we might once of. Mm-hmm. I was visiting uh, Ken Height um, and uh, saw his library, which is, is, you know, a thing of beauty, and, and I envy it. But I'm at this point, now I am settled again. I will have to start rebuilding my library. Right. Is there any particular book that you got rid of, and now you're looking back on having got rid of it, going, why on earth did I get rid of that book? Certainly are, you know, a number. Oh, I had, you know, first edition in nominee, uh, not in nominee, uh, Novelis, actually. It was what I was thinking of, which is just a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one where I'm sort of like, oh, I wish I still had that because it is such a beautiful book. But it's also a very large, heavy book and a system I wasn't likely to play. So, uh, so I, I, and it went to a good home. So, you know, again, when I say I got rid of my stuff, you know, I didn't just get rid that I passed it on to to other loving homes. Right. So uh, of the ones that you've got left, or perhaps you don't even have a copy of it, but uh, what is your favorite book or supplement uh, other than anything that you've uh, written or collaborated on? It's, it's very hard because, you know, I like things for so many different reasons. But if I had to just sort of pick 
one that I just feel like, oh, this just stands out in my mind as is something that has changed my gaming experience. Uh, I will go ahead and say a book called Weather the Cuckoo Likes, uh, which is a supplement for Over the Edge, just because it includes one of my favorite game mechanics of all time. Um, and something that I've I've sort of then carried on into uh, any number of other systems, um, which is called the cut-ups method by Robin Laws, mm-hmm. and um, and it's this sort of way of of taking a thing that normally uses dice and replacing the dice with randomly selected words, right. and the player then has to use those words in a paragraph describing their action and sort of how efficiently they use, you know, the words then sort of determines it's as if you rolled the die, but you have this chance to sort of decide the number by how cleverly you use the words. And part of it is it encourages creativity. It also can leave the player suddenly going in a very different direction than they originally planned because, well, this is, the story, the words are best equipped to tell. But I found, for example, I had a over-the-edge setting, and this, of course, goes ahead to show how weird over-the-edge can get, that uh, two examples here. One was uh, a group of characters who had to basically bowl against the Grim Reaper. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Another was a karaoke duel to the death. <laughs> of the audience for the audience or for the participants? Uh for the participants. It was it was uh basically one of the characters was playing a astral projection of a ninja in a coma, and so she right. couldn't physically interact with anyone. Right. Uh, and so they were in this place where you can sort of make any kind of deal, and so she arranged this karaoke duel um and again basically what ended up happening is i gave her the words and and she actually made a song and then sang it um and going back to the bowling example it was just something where just having everybody roll a die uh would have been very flat for the scene this is sort of a moment of high tension you know can you uh, defeat the Reaper, as it were, mm-hmm. saying, well, you got to get a 15. It's not very exciting. No. But have, have to actually say, wow, my words are soap, goat, and west. Yes. First, do I make a sentence, you know, a, a paragraph that is a logical uh, bowling triumph that uses soap and goat in it? Right. Um, so it sort of makes people think. Um I will also go ahead and actually, you know, just say, speaking to different things, but going back to indie, I love uh, Dread, you know, the sort of way in which the resolution mechanic of the Jenga Tower actually does encourage the mood the game is about, which is suspense. Yes. As, you know, much more so the difference between saying you have a D20, you need to roll 12 versus rolling a 16, mm. harder than the other, but... The tension, the action is the same. Yes. Whereas saying you have to move one Jenga tile to you have to move four Jenga tiles, that's a lot 
you know, more stressful on you, if you will. Um, so as I said, that's one of the things I like about the cut-ups method is it really makes the situation more and on the player than just rolling a die. Yes, and, and talking about the uh, the cut-ups, I can, within, this, within a couple of weeks, even though it was uh, 20 years ago, um, tell you exactly the first time that I that I used the uh, that I well, at least that I was exposed to the uh, to the cut ups. Um, a friend of mine, Mason, who I'm desperately trying to uh, to get on the show, um, had a bag for the cut ups. And at that point, O.J. Simpson was on trial, and so we were using the cut ups method to predict what would happen uh, in the trial. And he pulled out legend bears crime. It is uh, a lot of fun. I would always, uh, one of the things I did with my Over the Edge campaign was between every adventure, I would produce a one-page issue of the local newspaper. Nice. And you had essentially, oh, here's the top stories, you know, like two couple paragraph stories. Here's a bunch of uh, essentially classifieds, you know, basically job opportunities or advertisements or things that people could choose to follow up on. And then at the very end, there's the little scratches section, which is essentially, you know, person to person. It's just weird little messages that people are sending each other. And always have one of those that I would just create using the cut-ups method. And it was always interesting to see, like, okay, can we see how this bears into the action that's going on in the game, or is it suggests something new that could show up, or things like that? Yeah, that facility that human beings have to make sense out of nonsense is, you know, a constant source of uh, of enjoyment um, to me, and, and in some respects is um, uh, moulding the, the game that I'm working on uh, uh, right now, but... Um, Going back to the uh, to the cut ups there, just just one more time, um, the idea of um, being creative with constraints, I think, is is a really powerful one for for anybody trying to um, get into designing or or thinking. You know, like I can write about anything. You know, that's the hardest often um, to to write anything at all because there's just there's just literally no anchor to to work from. And do you find that, uh, or do you? Um, sometimes create limitations for yourself to try and sort of spur that creativity? Oh, well, I think that's that's definitely a, a thing to do in a lot of places of just saying, uh, I was just uh, visiting uh, Will Hindmarch and he was saying how he's been doing a thing where every month he takes um, the latest issue of Wired and writes a story that's inspired by something in that issue. Right. Just way of of just sort of saying, okay, I can write about anything, but can I write about this? You know, and sort of challenging, and uh, you know, keeping the uh, keeping game locked into any one thing. Right. So I'll go back and say one last thing about the cut ups method too is especially for me in uh, Over the Edge, you know, for characters I would also often use it for the sort of mad scientist or wizard of I liked it with magical characters in particular of saying, well, you may have these, you know, little reliable things that you can do generally speaking, but when you want to do something big, it's simply saying, I want to cast a spell. Well, here's your four words. What can you do with that? Mm. It is, well, they may have been planning to cast a fireball, but the fact of the matter is these four words are much better for putting someone to sleep or turning them into a goat or what have you. 
And I really liked it with, again, that whole idea of the sorcerer as I can bend the rules of reality, but here's the constraints. You know, here's what I have. Yes, absolutely. It hadn't occurred to me to try and use it in conjunction with uh, sort of like uh, wizard spells, but that is uh, that's genius. Okay, so is there anything coming out that you're looking forward to? Uh, I'm looking forward to a couple different things, actually. Um, Always Never Now by Wilhelm March is finally coming out uh, in the future, and that's his sort of cyberpunk adventure arc based on the uh, Lady Blackbird system, but with some tweaks of his own. I've played it a couple times, you know, a couple of the adventures in it and really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to, to seeing the whole thing, uh, in the very, you know, likewise, uh, Hill folk, you know, which I put a piece in for, but I'm very interested in seeing the, the sort of drama system overall. Um, and another one, again, going to Kickstarters that are just coming out is the, uh, cortex plus hackers guide. Um, from Margaret Weiss Productions, I'm particularly interested in the fantasy, uh, you know, hack that Dave Chalker and Phil Menard are coming up with. Um, I really want to see, you know, that's something I'm very interested in seeing. Is this this good match for Codex? Um, mm-hmm. So those are definitely things. I'm obviously curious to see where D&D Next is going, uh, but I don't really have a good sense of, in my mind at the moment, about how far you know how close they are to sort of having the final thing right okay so uh, if you could only be a player or a gm which would you choose definitely game master um it is something where when i was growing up i was the game master 90 percent of the time if not more and definitely for me i like seeing the entire story you know seeing how it's all all the pieces when the players do something, I can see, oh, this is how this changes that and that and that and that. Um, so I like having that big picture. I really like playing as well. It's a very different experience. But there's no question that if I had to choose one or the other, it would be uh, Game Master. Okay. And what's the perfect number of people to role play? For me, it's five, including the Game Master. I really like four people as a player group just because it's enough people to get a diverse range of characters but few enough that everybody, you know, gets to have time in the spotlight. And for me, I really like, you know, I role play for the story and uh, that comes out of things. And so I really like each character to have time to sort of be the focus of the story. Uh, and when you get into six or more players, it's really hard to give everybody sort of you know, their moments as it were. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So how often do you role play and for how long? Um, Not as often as I like recently, because again, I've just moved in. I've been settling in. I've been catching up with people. Uh, So I I was, when I was uh, doing the other game, I I was doing, you know, a weekly game and I really liked that. Um, And I would say sessions tend to be about five hours. At the moment, it's more sort of every three weeks to a month sort of thing. And, and, you know, again, switching about when I was doing Have Dice Will Travel, I was, you know, running a game every couple of days. Hmm. And, And then moving to another place and running the game again and moving to another place and running the game again. 
really, you know, I love that. And I love, you know, a lot of times when I go to convention, I may run six games over a weekend or something like that. And, and I love it. So, yeah. The, uh, the idea of having so many uh, that you know, have dice will travel. You must have uh, in, encountered some uh, some interesting characters along the way. Is there any particular incident or event that that sticks out in your mind, either in a you know in a well that was weird type way or something really cool that uh, that happened? Uh, well, I mean, there's all sorts of things. Again, you know, I, I was in so many different places. I will say, just thinking in things that. And, you know, part of the, the idea of Have Dice Will Travel is that I would stay with people for a bit. And the idea is, well, one day I entertain you, you know, running a game, talking about uh, things I do. And one day I want you to entertain me with whatever you think I ought to, you know, see or do uh, in your area. Mm-hmm. And I was, when I was in Slovakia, um, the people on... Uh, on their day, took me out for a broadsword lesson mm-hmm. with their, their sword coach, who didn't speak any English, uh, and and was quite good. And you know, I've done fencing and such before, but he was really good, and it was you know definitely a fun experience. And then from there, it turned out that another of this fellow's students uh, was an archaeologist working on a Bronze Age archaeological dig that we sort of got to go and have, excuse me, uh, to go and have a, um, you know, sort of behind-the-curtain look at a lot of things that were just very inspiring. Nice. uh, Future work. And, again, it's the kind of thing I never would have been able to do if I'd just gone on my own. Um, And just lots of interesting stories from people. You know, it's always interesting to hear... How did these people start gaming? Why did they, uh, what did they enjoy about it? Um, I love when I was in Bulgaria, they had a story about how when gaming first started, essentially uh, in Sofia, essentially this one fellow was given a copy of uh, the basic D&D rules, which he then photocopied and shared with his friends, but they couldn't get dice because right. it's easy to pass around uh, rules, but where the heck do you get a four-sided die if the game just doesn't exist in your country? Uh, and, you know, this was a time when uh, the Internet was not as accessible as it is now. A lot of people didn't have credit cards. You know, you couldn't just do the, oh, just, you know, order some from Amazon. Um and so they have stories about, you know, making dice from various things, you know, carve your own set of dice, or just whenever someone goes out of the country, you know, see if you can get money to get some dice. And just these stories of, uh, you know, people in the park trading dice the way we would, you know, trade magic cards or something right. like, oh my God, you've got that green four-sider. I've always wanted that. You know, I've wow. got that. That image, because I always, when I think of dice, I think of, yeah, you know, when I was 12, you know, I had, like, buckets of dice. Yes. And that idea of dice is a rare commodity where you, like, might only have a single set of dice for your group is just such a mind-blowing thing for me. And I wonder, did you speak to anybody who was trying to get into uh, to role-playing um, before, the, um, before the Iron Curtain? Um, came down. I wonder what the the Soviet uh, or communist regimes 
feelings about role-playing with? Uh, I didn't actually have anyone specifically say that, oh, the regime was a problem with it. I did think it was interesting with, uh, when I was in Bulgaria, I believe it was, one of the things they were saying is that role-playing didn't particularly have a stigma attached to it the way it often did in, you know, when you look to the U.S. and, oh, it's the devil's game or it's about witchcraft or things like that. And what they were saying is, well, it didn't have a stigma because nobody knew what it was. That, you know, basically you were more likely to find someone who believed in aliens than someone who, you know, knew about D&D. Right. And, and that they would actually sort of stand out on street corners, essentially proselytizing, saying, oh, you know, uh, can I take a moment to tell you about D&D just to get some people to play? <laughs> but, but no, they didn't say, oh, and then, you know, the censors came down on us and, and got rid of this. Right. So should males play females? And you can take that either, um, you know, people should look at role-playing as a way to do different things and, and as a consequence you know you should take the opportunity to play uh, cross-gender or um, whether you think that um, you know that's just you know, something that shouldn't happen uh, I absolutely say why not uh, you know to me the point is I'm not a dwarf or an elf or a warforged but I can play one and for me if I'm playing a warforged to me that's about saying what does it mean to be a warforged what is different about this from who I am? And so what I'm saying is, frankly, there's a lot more different about being a Warforged than there is about being a man or a woman. Uh, and to me, one of the opportunities of role-playing is a chance to think about what would it be like to be this person, you know? And again, you know, to have this religion, to be this race, to be this gender, you know, to me, it's all about who is this character and what does it mean to be this character? And if this character is female and you're male, but there's a reason, you know, so to speak, that it's female, there's something, you know, you're doing with that. There's something you want to explore. Great. Uh, And vice versa. You know, I've certainly known a lot of female players who choose to play male characters. But to me, it's that basically, are you doing this because this is is who that character, you know, this is what that character should be? Or are you doing it just because uh, it's just me and I'm in a dress, you know, if you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Um, And that was actually one of my biggest problems with elves when I first started out uh, was people playing elves just as humans with pointy ears because they wanted the stat bonuses. And to me, it was always, and that was just something in particular in early D&D I saw a lot of in my circle was, oh, they just want to be a fighter magic user or they want, you know, the the bonus. So they're going to be an elf, but they never actually stop and think, wow, I can live to be 700 years old. You know, I'm probably 300 years old right now. What does that mean? What's that like? You know, how do I view humans um, and, and so, yeah, you know, to me playing a 300 year old elf is also very different from who I am. And to me, it's all about, yeah, think about who that character is, play whatever you want, but think about how that person is different from you. Right. And, and looking at a little bit of looking at that, uh, issue a little bit obliquely then, um, whereas it's not possible to perpetuate any, uh, harmful stereotypes about elves by pay, playing an elf in a certain way or, or a warforge in a certain way. 
Um, there is that aspect um, to playing a, a female and making, like, let's just say, for example, there are other, there are some females at the table in the group that you're at. There's what sort of responsibility do you have to um, the people at your table when you're you're playing? I'm not talking about being overtly sexist or, or as Satine said, be saucy and, and have sex, but, um, but in trying to explore what it might be like, is there the possibility that you're going to um, do a bad job or do a you know a cardboard cutout job or make it an uncomfortable experience for other people at the table? Well, I think uncomfortable experience is the most important one there to me. Is is what you're doing, you know? Because this goes to so many things. Am I playing a female character and offending all the women at the uh, the table who think I'm just basically uh, being a jerk? Uh, but I would say the same is true of I'm playing the thief who picks all the other players' pockets uh, because that's what my character would do. Right. I was in a group where we were largely non-humans. The general theme of it was supposed to be this is like Firefly. You know, we're a, a group of people who have been together and fought together and, and we're all loyal. Uh, and the guy playing our commanding officer was the only human in the group and decided, well, humans are probably really racist and <laughs> like crap. And the point of that is his excuse was, you know, essentially I'm playing a racist character, so I'm going to be racist. I'm just role-playing my character. And my thing is that... When the excuse of I'm just role-playing my character becomes a problem is when you role-playing your character interferes with me and the rest of, you know, the majority of the players being able to role-play their characters. And in this case, you know, what we finally took him aside and said is, look, the way we've set this all up, there is no reason we would not have, you know, taken you out the back and stuffed in your pants. Mm. Uh, you know... We cannot realistically play this situation because realistically, we would not stay with you. Mm. In fact, we probably would have killed you. Yes. You know, and there is this artificial stricture of we must all stick together because we are six people playing a game. But if your character is someone who realistically these other people would not spend time with. If, you know, the only reason you're not being driven out of the group is because, well, you're actually my friend Bob and we're getting together to play, then that's a problem. You're you're destroying the realism of the story, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm saying is you said, oh, it's not as bad if someone, you know, does a stereotype of a Warforged. Well, you know, obviously I don't like it when people play Warforged certain ways. But at the same time, if that's not bothering anyone else in the group, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean they're wrong. Uh, so, again, to me, the guy playing the woman, my question is, well, is the way he's playing it interfering with everyone else's ability to have a good time? And that's sort of the key thing. If the answer is, oh, no, everyone's you know all fine with it, uh, then it's probably okay. If he is upsetting women at the table or men at the table well then there's a problem and that's something the group needs to work out together yep absolutely absolutely um so how do you prepare for a game session um well i really like 
I generally like to prefer uh, to sort of run with a sandbox style right. uh, where I know where the game is going, but I don't know how they're going to get there. And so I generally will sort of sit down with, you know, a little list of here are the main NPCs that are involved in this scenario. Here are the primary locations people are likely to go. And here are at least a couple of sort of key scenes that could happen in any sort of order. But A, I'm pretty darn sure this one's going to happen. And B, if there's a lull and nothing's going on, here's something I can drop in to keep things moving. And so it basically just, again, be sort of going over those things. Do I have those all in order? And who are these people again? You know, what's going on? For sure. Okay. So, um, Keith, we've been running for about an hour, probably an hour and 15 um, Mm -hmm. in terms of the, what it'll be uh, that I'll I'll edit from. So I'm not sure how you're you're set for time, but given that I'm definitely going to do question 16, of the ones that are left, are there any ones you feel a particular affinity for? And then we can, we can rattle those ones. I'd like to ask you about fudging, fudging dice rolls, but other than that, any of the other ones you like? No, um, Again, it's it's a matter of I've already sort of answered my dice superstition answer was going to be talking about Bulgaria. I happen to have a, a die I carry around that I was given. Sure. That's one, not a bad one. As I mentioned, Bulgaria, there's a specific sure. point to that. Uh, so 14 is good. Um, the elevator pitch, I certainly have the one I tend to use when I'm describing gaming to people. Okay, cool. Yep. Um, I don't really, the, you know, like the TV show, the favorite villain, those aren't super strong answers. So I'd say fudge, fudge rolls, and then maybe jump to the dice superstitions. Okay, sure. Okay. So do you, or should GMs fudge dice rolls? Uh, well, basically there's a couple different aspects of the question. First off, yes, I fudge dice rolls. Um, However, I feel a better thing to do is, again, question, do you need to roll the dice at all? Right. Uh, someone once said to me, and I thought, you know, it's something I've always taken away, is never roll, you know, never call for a die roll where you're not prepared for the players to succeed or to fail. Right. And if you have a particular outcome that you want, well, then why are you asking them to roll at all? Uh, and... With that said, certainly in a case of something like combat, and that sort of comes to the point, if um, I don't generally like characters dying unless I feel that it's a good dramatic situation where if this was a story or a movie, you know, someone could die here. So if it's just, oh, a random thing that was just supposed to beat you up a little happens to get a critical, you know, triple critical hit um, and it's going to kill you, I'll probably fudge it a little because eh, this just isn't a really interesting situation for you to die. On the other hand, I will also potentially fudge up, you know, increase the uh, damage people do, or if someone just isn't in a tense position, Hmm. have them get hit when they didn't get hit. However, the point is, if you do it too often, you defeat the purpose of having the dice there at all. Yes. Basically, the player has the sense that they can't die, or... Can't fail, uh, then that destroys any sense of tension. Again, it's why are you using the dice if you are going to make a particular outcome happen? So my point is, I definitely feel you shouldn't be chained to the dice, but 
I also feel that if it is going to make the experience better for everyone, you shouldn't feel locked to the dice either. And the big thing is don't roll in a time where you really don't actually want one outcome. Um, the other thing I would say there is it's the same with how closely you stick to the rules in general. It's the collaboration. This game that I've played running around the world, I've run 54 times. And there's a certain aspect of it that has a sort of like a murder mystery. And the fourth time I ran it, the players, you know, two-thirds of the way through the game, lay out all the facts and say, well, wait a second. It's clear the uh, the murderer is Colonel Mustard. Mm-hmm. They're totally wrong. You know, it's it, it's Miss Scarlet. And they're they're completely wrong. And at that point, I could have simply had it be Miss Scarlet, and they would have got there and been like, oh, okay, huh. You know, so that's who it was. But the thing of it was their answer made sense. It had simply not occurred to me that someone could see the facts in this way, but it was, you know, they thought it through. And so I went ahead and changed it. Had it be Colonel Mustard, and, you know, they were, like, really excited. They are like, yeah, we solved that mystery, you know, and we're the best detectives ever. And the point to me is you can't do that all the time, or again, victory is meaningless. If you always just hand the players success, why are you bothering to place them in a stressful situation? However, in that particular case, the point was their answer was just as good as mine. I simply hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me you could look at the things that way. And if I just stuck with my answer, it would have just left them leaving, feeling kind of like, huh, okay, I guess it could be that. But our answer was good, too, uh, whereas the answer they'd come up with made sense to them. And, and, you know, again, it was the story they'd want it to be. And that's what I like about role-playing as opposed to, you know, I write novels. Uh, when I'm writing a novel, you're just getting my story. When I'm doing a role-playing game, you may have ideas that I just didn't consider that at the end of the day are actually make a better story. And I like that I have the ability to adjust what I'm doing uh, if it makes a better experience for all of us. Right, and that's the thing, is like, where is your loyalty? Is your loyalty to the story you've written and the system you're using, or is the loyalty to the to the people that are showing up to uh, to share this with you? And I think the answer to that one is clear, but, but maybe not for all people. I would just add to that that the thing about it is I've run this one game 54 times, and it is different every time. It's still interesting for me to run it because... It's still interesting to see what does this group do with mm. it. Oh yeah, and that would be interesting. The collaboration it keeps it interesting for me too. So, so talking about dice, do you have any dice superstitions? So, not you know as huge in the "don't touch my dice" way, but I certainly have favorite dice. Dice I use with certain characters. Uh, the dice story that comes to mind to me as just one though is. I mentioned Bulgaria having the the whole history of when it was the you know, time when it was hard to to get dice, right. and um, one of my hosts was telling me the story and explaining how this one fellow you know had more dice than anybody, and at one point he ended up selling a bunch of his dice to make rent. Right. <laughs> and again, that idea that oh my god, you know, again selling ten dice could get you rent money. Um, and he gave me one of those dice. So I have, you know, sort of one of the first D20s 
uh, in Bulgaria. And I've always carried that one with me ever since uh, and, you know, used that just because, you know, it's a die with history. Mm. It's a fascinating story that they should be so uh, they should be so valuable. So, uh, what's your role playing elevator pitch, including your go to example of play? Well, what I tend to say when I'm just talking to someone who's never, you know, uh, sort of heard anything about it at all or heard of D and D is, you know, again, it's it's sort of like a play without a script. Uh, what I always say is. Well, do you know Lord of the Rings? Have you seen the, you know, and a lot of times, even if they haven't read it, they've seen the movies, mm-hmm. seen Lord of the Rings movie. And I'll say, okay, well, now imagine you're the hobbits going to Bree and you see a black rider down the road. What do you do? And the point being, well, in the movie, you know, they hide and it passes by. Well, do you hide? Do you want to talk to him? Do you want to fight him? Do you want to climb the tree? Do you want to go down? That you have the choice here as to how are you going to handle the situation. And then my job as Game Master is to determine what happens when you do. Um, And so that's one where I find, again, a lot of people have seen the movie and they can stop and say, okay, so how would that be different? And, you know, um, what would I do in that situation? All righty. So, Keith, for all the marbles. All right. Adding up to 100, assign points to reflect the relative importance of system, GM, and players. It's a tough one, and it also, of course, varies somewhat by the system. Sure. But I tend to say 40 GM, 50 players, 10 system. Which is to say the system, again, any system, can be uh, fun for different groups. You know, the system changes the story but it's the least important part of the whole experience to me. Uh, The game master is the one who brings the story to the table, but I feel that in a good game, the players are then the ones who are experiencing it and shaping it. That, you know, really to me, when we sit down for an evening, there's, you know, six of us at the table say, If I'm doing my job right, my job is to make sure everyone at that table, myself included, but everyone at that table has a good time. And going back to some of the things I said before, and it's the player's job to do that too. You know, if you have the one player who the way he plays pisses everyone else off, he's not doing his job. This is something we're doing together so we all have fun. And the game master carries more of the weight because they are the one who, as an individual, is coming up with the story that we're all going to play with. But then it's, you know, all of us are, you know, regardless of whether it's a thing or it's a story where we shape it or whether we just shape it by our interactions with each other. Uh, You know, in terms of are we going to have fun tonight, a lot of that is based on the players themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, Keith Baker. Well, thank you very much. I've had a wonderful time. That's it for episode 52 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, daniel at hazardgaming.com. And until next week, keep talking the walk. 